is the fourth day of the Darwin Festival at the University of Cambridge, celebrating numerous Darwinian anniversaries. I'm Diana O'Carroll from The Naked Scientists, and we're here to bring the best of the festival to you. Walking around the exhibition, Chris Smith has bumped into visitors from near and far. I'm George Marcells, and I'm a facial plastic surgeon from Sydney. So what are you doing at the Darwin Festival? Uh, I'm interested to find out a little bit more about Darwin the man, and I've been interested to hear Richard Dawkins speak, and I've also been interested in uh, discussions regarding science versus religion. Uh, Darwin's probably had quite a big impact on medicine in general, but in your field, plastic surgery... That's people actually changing themselves to fit in better with their environment. Well, of course. I mean, that, that's sort of the very basics for why people consider having uh, facial plastic surgery. They want to change their appearance, presumably to improve themselves, and uh, that would give them a, an improved chance of uh, finding a mate. It's going to say improved enhanced mating success, perhaps. Do you exactly. find it works out like that in practice? Well, I think it certainly gives people confidence, so therefore they're going to not only maybe look better, but also socially interact better with people, so I suspect it does. Who are you? Uh, Alex McKillop. And are you also from Sydney? I am also from Sydney. What do you do? I work for Vodafone. I live in London. Why have you come to Darwin? Just a general interest. I'm fascinated by Darwin and the impact that he's had on history, and I find that an interesting topic to learn about. What about in the telecoms industry? Do you see much emphasis on influence of Darwin there? Uh, not in a direct manner, no. no. Well, you'd argue that competition between your company and other companies probably follows Darwinian principles, wouldn't it? Principles, absolutely, but I think those principles apply to pretty much every facet of life. Directly, I don't see a direct difference in the way Vodafone goes about its business because of Darwin. Do you think there are lots of people like yourself who are not necessarily scientists straight out but are nonetheless very interested in, in what probably the best biologist of all time had to say? Uh, looking around me, I would say that most of the people here are scientists and academics, but in the wider population, uh, I think that there is room for a, a growth in the level of uh, understanding of, of these type of issues in our, in our population. It's not really what you'd call a mainstream issue, unfortunately. You say unfortunately, presumably you think it should be. Yes, absolutely. I think we'd be better off, or you would be better off as a country if the papers were filled with more of these ideas rather than uh, what's happening on Big Brother. And I wonder what Darwin would make of the last, having also been lampooned in the tabloids of his day, although likely not on page three. Also today, Chris Smith met one historian, Sandra Herbert, who has retraced Darwin's early geological work in the Galapagos Islands. On the geological side, he was interested in showing that different kinds of lava could be produced from the same vent and that this process could go on presently. Uh, Some geologists had thought that basalts or trachytes were produced at different periods in the Earth's history. I read it, and I wouldn't have paid so much attention to it except for uh, two American geologists who resurveyed the Galapagos in the 1960s and said that what Darwin said he found wasn't really there. Well, that's sort of a challenge. <laughs> who were they? Who said that? Yeah, uh, Howell Williams, who was at the University of California, Berkeley, and A.R. McBurney, uh, the University of Oregon, Eugene. They suggested that the specimen that was in the Sedgwick was possibly misplaced. It came from a different collection. And they didn't really challenge his view on volcanic islands. You know, he may have come to the right conclusion for the wrong reason. So what I tried to do as a historian was work from the manuscripts, which are here in the university library, and go over to the Sedgwick 
and look at the rocks, and then go to the Galapagos and look at the site. Two igneous petrologists, Dennis Geist and Sally Gibson, went on the island, and they found the rocks. And what was interesting to me is it took them about the same amount of time as it took Darwin. He came on this about a day and a half, two days after landing. That's exactly the time it took them, too. But thanks to you, they knew what they were looking for. He didn't. Yes, yes, he didn't know what he was doing. And, I mean, he didn't know exactly what he'd find there because no one had explored it. The analytical techniques I had as a historian were mainly color. You know, (laughs) what color is this rock? Darwin said he collected a greenish-gray rock. I went to the Sedgwick, looked at the drawer, looked greenish-gray to me. (laughs) So they return from the island with these rock samples. You must have been absolutely delighted with that result. Yes, absolutely delighted. We found exactly what we were looking for. Sandra Herbert, Research Associate at the Smithsonian Institution. She was speaking to Chris Smith about the authenticity of Darwin's rocks. But Darwin wasn't just right about the grey-green rocks. As Brian Rosen from the Natural History Museum explains, he also came to understand the formation of peculiar rings of coral in the ocean. Because atolls are ring-shaped structures, one of the ideas that people had had was that they mirrored volcanic craters. So the idea was that there would be submarine craters which were all, as it were, conveniently at the right depth for reef-building organisms, which only live in shallow water, to then just make a rim of coral on top of the crater rim. But it did assume or did postulate that there were all these craters all handily at the right elevation for the corals to start growing on. So that was a problem for them, and that's why they asked the Beagle, uh, asked Fitzroy to go and have a look at that problem. And when Charles Darwin was invited to be the naturalist on board, of course, then he became engaged with that idea. How did Darwin study it, and what was his conclusion? Well, interestingly, he developed his own alternative hypothesis. He says he developed it on the coast of South America long before he ever saw a coral reef. And his alternative was that after a volcano has erupted and had its eruptional period, it begins to subside, the coral reefs grow on the flanks of it, and bit by bit the volcano disappears beneath the waves as the reefs grow onward and upward, leaving you with this ring-shaped atoll. So some of these South Sea islands that we see that do still have their volcano in the middle, they're kind of evolving to become an atoll eventually then? Precisely that. That's exactly what Darwin says. There's a lovely plate where he gathers up all the charts of about, what is it, ten-odd number of different uh, islands, just as you describe, all with still bits of volcano in the middle, not erupting anymore, but all of them showing more or less peak left. And you could easily imagine him then putting these apparently quite separate phenomena in an evolutionary, because that's what it is in a geological sense of evolutionary, an evolutionary sequence of the island in the middle gradually fading from view. Brian Rosen, scientific associate at the Natural History Museum. But moving from the evolution of geological features to the evolution of behaviour. Some of the profs here at the festival could argue for hours over the degree to which our culture affects human behaviour, and vice versa. But as Herbert Gintis explains to David Fisher, some aspects of behaviour are explained better by a biological basis. I think the modern view is that we evolved to be cultural, moral beings. We did not evolve to be selfish, self-interested beings. Before 10,000 years ago, all humans lived in small hunter-gatherer societies consisting of between 9 and 18 families. They subsisted on group hunting and very egalitarian sharing of food, probably. That's the environment within which we developed our morality. Are you saying that we're actually predisposed to cooperate? 
we're predisposed to cooperate and we're predisposed to retaliate against non-cooperators and we're predisposed to gather together to protect ourselves against enemies who are similarly inclined to hurt us. All those are predispositions that humans have that, for instance, apes do not have. Of course, uh, this always leads to the, the big uh, challenge, and that is cooperation to change our behaviour and change our society with the challenge of climate change. Have you got a view as to why it's proving so difficult for us as a group to change our structure and our thinking and what we're prepared to do to bring the changes that are necessary? I don't think it is that hard to do. I think it takes a generation to do. Uh, the previous generation had to deal with population growth, and we had what was called the demographic transition, in which when countries achieve a certain level of material well-being, families stop having so many children. They want to have one or two children and high-quality children with education and uh, all the accoutrements. This happened because of changes in social norms. It became socially acceptable to have small numbers of children, not large numbers. It took a generation for this to take effect, and there's still things to do. If we teach our children about the environment, if we take seriously the ecology as part of the moral structure of our society, the next generation will act out on that as long as they think it's reasonable, and I think they will. Herbert Gintis, external professor at Santa Fe Institute, with a positive outlook on our ability to sort our own societies out. He was speaking to David Fisher, but that wasn't the only warm and fuzzy message at the festival. Here's Paul Nurse. Well, I was interested in what controls the division of cells. Every living thing, including our cells, are made up of cells, and they undergo reproduction. They divide from one to two to four and eight. And I was studying this in a very, very simple organism, a a very simple fungus, a yeast. And uh, using standard genetic techniques, I identified um, the key gene, or one of the key genes, that controls the reproduction of that cell. And that was uh, quite a, a nice story, but only seemed relevant to yeast. But um, the question was, was it relevant to everything else as well? Mm. And um, the experiment that my lab did there was to take a a library of genes from human cells, sprinkle them, if you like, on the yeast cells, yeast cells that were defective in this key gene that controlled their division. And those yeast cells that took up, amongst the many thousands of human genes, um, the gene that was doing the same function actually could then go on to divide. They were no longer defective. And this was quite an extraordinary result because it meant even something quite complicated, um, controlling the division of a cell, had been conserved between yeasts and humans over the aeons of time, probably 1.5 billion years, and yet it still worked perfectly in the yeast cell. It's completely extraordinary. So once again, Darwin's concept here of the tree of life, that we're all related in some sense, is shown there, that this gene could work perfectly in a human gene, could work perfectly in a yeast cell and do it. I think there's something else here I'd like to say. This question of us being related by descent... John Sulston, who was key for sequencing the worm, sequencing humans, my group was involved in sequencing the yeast. What it's shown is that well over half the genes in yeast are genes that we can study there which are relevant to human beings. So we can use them as a model for understanding how we ourselves work. And a final thing about this relationship, which touches me at least, is that it strengthens the fact that we are related to every living thing. And I think this is the best argument you can make 
for being a good steward for the biosphere. We're just looking after our own family. And if we can just accept that we are actually quite closely related to the banana, to the worm, even to a yeast, it's a good argument for taking better care of them. Paul Nurse, he's president of Rockefeller University, and we're speaking to Chris Smith on why we should take better care of bananas, or at least other organisms. And science in society is something that the relatively new administration in the USA are thinking about. Harold Farmers explains to Chris Smith what will be important in his role advising Obama. America, pretty big country, very powerful economy, instrumental in making big developments happen on the scientific stage. What do you think they should be prioritising? Well, it's very difficult when you say all of science because um, uh, there are so many things to be done. One of the things that uh, is inspirational to many of us now who are involved both in science and in politics is the view that our president, our new president, has taken toward the centrality of, of, of science in, in uh, thinking about the country's future. We just passed through eight years of uh, difficulty in which um, uh, the, the, the nation's problems were being solved by dogmatic assertions and uh, an obliviousness to what science can do to help our future. And President Obama has laid out pretty clearly that we have to be doing a better job in educating our young people so that they understand science and technology, so we have those tools for the future, that we use science to confront most obvious problems, that is, uh, a need for energy that doesn't sully the environment and change the climate, and that we need a new health system and one that is based on clear knowledge about what methods for improving people's health work and don't work and building a, a biomedical research establishment that is useful in combating disease. So that leaves you know, energy and health research as key among the things that America and indeed the world should be thinking about. Harold Varmus, president of the Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre, on how energy and health research are now the two key issues for science and policy in the USA. That's it for Thursday's edition of the Daily Darwin, but we'll be back tomorrow with a final roundup. I hope you can join us.